I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, looking at Paul's picture of how discipleship occurs, how Christians are supposed to grow, and how the body of Christ as a whole is supposed to grow. So follow along with me as I read from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in, in, grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand how you are working in this world, that you would extract the idols in our heart and the idols of our culture, that we would be a people who live for you and a people who embody you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. There is this picture of Christian discipleship that is, I think, often discussed today that I think is, is quite contrary to what we just read in Ephesians chapter 4. And the image is of Christian growth occurring like an acorn to an oak tree. Now what happens is that the seed gets planted and the seed grows into a young sapling. It needs to be fed and watered by, by the Word and by the Spirit and by maybe some worship and by the sun. And it needs to be fed and it, and it grows into this mighty oak tree, this mighty oak tree which will then send forth its own acorns. I'm not sure if there could be a more secularized version of Christianity than this picture. I'm not sure if there could be a model of discipleship that exalts the self and denies the body of Christ than this picture does. My aim for us this morning is to detach a biblical picture of Christian discipleship from Christianized secularism that is rampant throughout our churches, and from Christianized um, from the and from the Christianized American quest for independence and self independence and self fulfillment, like a cancerous tumor that has become intertwined with a body, and sometimes you don't even know it's there until it becomes really detrimental. My goal this morning is to extract this tumor that has been eating the church from the biblical picture of discipleship. There's four extractions that we're going to look at here this morning. The first thing that needs to be extracted is the Christian's goal. 
And the Christian's goal, according to Scripture in this passage, is to build the body and not the individual. The goal is to build the body. Elisha, my clicker's not working. All right. Stay on your toes, bro. The goal is to build the, the, goal is to build the body, not the individual. Verse 4, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called. Thank you. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Verse 11 picks up this, verse 11 also picks up this image. And what Paul is laying out for us is that for each one of us, For each one of us individually, the goal that Christ has for us is to build the body of Christ. That individually that we would build the body, that the body would become the fullness of Christ. That the individual, the individual Christian, exists for the promotion of the body. The body does not exist for the promotion of the individual, and that is the complete opposite of our society. Andrew Del Banco, who is a historian at Columbia University, gave a series of lectures, and he turned it into a book called The Real American Dream. And he highlights three major shifts that occurred in what Americans live for. And he identified the first era as the era of religion, whereas people came to America, America was started and founded, such as the Puritans, to be a city on a hill. That people lived for their faith to have religious liberty, religious freedom, and people gave themselves and they gave their lives so that, they would, so that people could be set free and that people who came to America would be set free to worship however they wanted. The second phase moved from a quest for living for a religious liberty, but to living for our nation. And in living for our nation, it was that the, that the greatest good of the individual was for the promotion of the nation, particularly combined with World War I and World War II and the challenges and the defeat of Nazism and then subsequently the, the arguing the fight against communism. This, this became the battle in what Americans live for. And so JFK could state quite clearly and he could state quite definitively, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. What is he appealing to? He's saying, you as individuals need to live for something greater. And it resonated with people because it said, yes, we should live for something greater than our individual self. We should live for our country. And then what Andrew Del Banco goes on to identify is that what has shifted over the course of the 20th century is that we have gone from a society of people that lived for the advancement of religion, that lived for the advancement of the country to a society that is lives for the advancement of the self. And that's what identifies the real American dream. That the function of society in America, in a Western culture, unlike every other culture throughout the history of the, the, the world, because in other societies, the individual lived to promote the family. The individual lived to, pr- to maintain the honor of the family, the honor of the tribe or clan to help the government, the Roman Empire, expand and succeed, help the United States expand and succeed. What has happened is that Western secular culture has flipped that upside down and has said that the highest ideal of a society is not to further the interest of any one group, but the highest ideal is to help individuals be set free without hindrance. That individuals exist 
not for the purpose of something, for some greater goal in society, but rather society now exists in service to the individual. You bring that secular storyline into the church and what happens? The individual Christian does not exist for the building of the body of Christ, but the body of Christ exists exists for the building up of the individual. But Paul's vision is something radically different. For he said each part is there so that the body would come together, that it would be built up in itself, that the body would be united together, that the body of Christ, the corporate entity, would become the fullness of Christ. Individually, that the different parts would be united together and cooperate together towards something that is bigger than the self. That the goal of the individual Christian life, the goal of, Christ, of being a Christian, is to build the body and not the self. Second item that we need to extract is the way that Christian growth occurs. Is that Christian growth occurs in the body and not through a detached brain. Here's what I mean by this. Verse 11, Paul writes, he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Meaning he has given to the church a lot of people who have specific functions and specific jobs. And he gave them people to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. That the way that the the individual Christian grows is through being a part of the body of Christ, And being a part of the body of Christ, that they grow in the body of Christ and as a part of the body of Christ, not as a detached and isolated brain. There was a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism. What Gnosticism taught was that if you wanted to be spiritually fulfilled, if you wanted to have spiritual significance, you needed to gain Gnosis. And what Gnosis was, is that Gnosis was having special knowledge. You needed to gain special knowledge, and that was granted to a few people. Today, there's a new version of this, is that in our culture, knowledge has become an individual, not a communal endeavor. I mean, you can go to college without going to college. You can go to college without ever getting out of your pajamas because you can do it all online. You can do it in your home. You don't need anybody else to earn a college degree. You can do that by yourself. The internet has more knowledge than you could ever gain. Uh, and plus the fact with the rise of online and distance education, knowledge becomes this completely individual endeavor. There is a Christianized version of this. Is that while Christians have rightly emphasized the priority of the Word of God, that the Word of God alone is authoritative, that the Word of God alone is infallible. Not the church, not a church, not the clergy, not pastors, not the preacher, not church tradition. That the Word of God the Bible, the Word of God alone is authoritative and and infallible. What the devil has done is he has taken that idea and he has rammed it through American secularism and individualism. And the way that that's gotten expressed is that there has become this distortion where individual Christians, where Christianity in America has come to believe that that what's most important is gaining this special knowledge. That knowledge is achieved individually, and it comes by coming, you know, by gaining it into my brain. There's this distorted Christian quest for gnosis, and you can do this completely on your own, because you can read books, you can read the Bible yourself, you can listen to sermons online that are better than anything that you would find in a local church, and not only that, but you can pick the things that you're interested in, 
the ones that you most enjoy, you can get the knowledge that you need into your head. And something that I hear people also saying more frequently today in our own community is people talk about worship, and people will say things like this. They'll say, you know what, sometimes I just love going on long car rides by myself. I can turn the stereo up really loud, and I can sing out really loud, and I can have my surround sound system really loud, and I love it because I can drive in the car, and as I'm singing out, I can really worship God in my car. If you want to praise God in your car, great. Sing your hearts out. But it's a remarkable statement that there are many people who believe that when I really worship, that's something that I do by myself, that that's something that I do detached and isolated from the body of Christ. Because what also happens is that the best part of picking and choosing my own knowledge to receive and picking and choosing the worship that I like is that what happens is that I can pick what I want, I can pick what I think I need, and you know what? I don't have to care about what anyone else wants. I can focus completely on my own needs, my own wants, my own desires as I define them according to my own criteria. I can celebrate and indulge myself in a Burger King Christianity that says, have it your way. Your way right away. Your way right away right now. You don't need anybody else. You can, Christian growth can occur just by you getting this stuff in your brain. And the picture that the Apostle Paul gives is the exact opposite. That Christian growth occurs in the body. In fact, it is that the Word of God is embodied in the body of Christ. And that's where growth occurs as the body itself grows. Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you look at this and say, okay, wait a second. People need to know the word of God. Yes, they do. But Christianity is not Islam. You see, you, you see these things in the news periodically where there's a huge uprival, up, uprisal and there's a riot because someone has desec- desecrated the Quran. The reason is that within Islam, there is a veneration for the word of God as in Arabic, as they would call it from that within the Quran. There is a veneration for it through the prophet that is contained on those pages. It's more the Muslim's relationship to the Quran is more like a Christian's relationship to Jesus and the regard for it. But as Christians, we do not believe in the disembodied word. We believe that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We believe that the Word became embodied. God could have communicated by speaking to us on a voice from on high. But when you look at Scripture, He doesn't do so. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's only one or two examples where you can find a disembodied voice coming. It almost always comes through the prophets, God speaking through the prophets to the people. And in the New Testament, there are only three instances of a disembodied voice from on high. One of those is at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Spirit descends on him, and the, spirit, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Second time it happens is at the transfiguration of Jesus, cloud over overcomes Jesus, and while he's gathered there, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to the embodied word. Listen to the one who is the word and the word that has become flesh. And then John 12 is the third example where Jesus is prepared for his glorification, and it's a vindication of the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
What Scripture then goes on to tell us is that this embodied word is found in Jesus. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, through people, flesh, embodied word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he is appointed to be the heir of all things. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his Son. And then what you see in the rest of the New Testament, such as Matthew 28, 19, is that God takes that word, Jesus takes that word, and he passes it on to his disciples, so his disciples will take it and pass it on to somebody else. Matthew 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is one thing to teach people, to broadcast stuff, to put something on the internet that someone can access on their own terms. It is another thing to teach somebody to observe. Because to teach someone to observe requires person on person. It requires life on life. And what Paul gives as an example of how this works out in the church is it continues in Ephesians 4.11. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He gives people who embody the word to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ, which is the church, Ephesians 2.21 makes that clear, that the body of Christ is not an abstract, ethereal thing. The body of Christ is the church. That he gives people to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. That the nature of Christian discipleship is it is embodied in the body of Christ, not this detached special knowledge. It is life on life, person on person, relationship on relationship, mess on mess, person in need of grace, walking alongside another person who is in need of grace. So let me ask you, who... In the flesh, actively points you to Jesus Christ. Who are you in the flesh pointing them to Jesus Christ? That's why it was so important for us when we embarked on Act 1 8, this focus, refocusing on making disciple makers, to envision, invest, and engage to actually engage in the work of disciple-making. To engage it because the way that God makes disciples is not through propagation. Yes, the word goes out, the word goes out, but growth occurs as it is embodied in the body of Christ. It occurs in the body and it occurs through the body, and he calls us as the body to engage in this work of disciple-making. The third extraction that we need need to identify in this passage, is that Christian strength first, Christian, the goal of, excuse me, the Christian's goal is to build the body, not the individual. The second extraction is that Christian growth occurs in the body, not just in this detached brain. The third extraction is that Christian strength comes through unity and not through isolation. Look at what verse 13 says. Because pastors, prophets, apostles and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until, notice the collective noun, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until we all attain to this unity. 
that the strength comes in being united. Unity cannot be experienced individually. If you are a detached or an isolated individual, you're not united to anything. By definition, unity is bringing separate different pieces that are joined together. You can't be united unless you're united. I I don't know how to say that more simply or more clearly. You can't be what Christ is calling you to be in being united to the body of Christ if you're not united to the body of Christ. It's that simple and that clear. And he goes on to say, what is it that unites us? It is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That which unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the one thing that can and the only thing that should unite us. What should unite us together is not the schooling choices that we make for our children, It's not forming a a, a posse or a little pocket of people about whether or not you like Western medicine or alternative medicine and the latest thing that you found. It's not being united around politics or your political agenda, your political preferences. It's not being united about whatever social cause is that you think is most important that all Christians should be concerned about. The only thing that can unite us and the only thing that should unite us is the one thing that does unite us, which is the faith and knowledge of the Son of God in a relationship with Jesus Christ and with him alone. And the strength comes through the unity, unity being built around this relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 14 expands this a little bit further. So until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitfulness. Do I know the way I venture to guess that most American Christians read this passage? They read it like this. You need to be built up in the body of Christ until you attain the unity of faith and knowledge. Until you get to the place in your journey where you have attained to mature manhood, where you have become the fullness of Christ, so that you are no longer a little child, so that you are no longer tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every doctrine, that you would be the one who would be strengthened. And Paul says the exact opposite. He says, no, strength comes through unity, not through isolation. Over the last couple of years, as the refugee crisis in uh, the Middle East has expanded, you know, you, we see these news pictures of rafts and rafts of people setting out and floating across the Mediterranean so that they can get to, get to safety. And every once in a while, you can look at one of these pictures of people just floating, and if you zoomed in on the picture, you look at it, and the whole raft is children. And you look at it, and you say, dear God, That entire raft is children adrift at sea. What hope do they have? And parents who were in such a desperate situation that they would just pile their kids onto this raft and just hope that their kids would make it. 
And we look at that and we say, you know, what, what hope do they have? They're just children. Paul develops a similar image for us. He says, so that we may no longer be children. So that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that we would not be children adrift in the sea. So that we would no longer be children, no longer be those who are in spiritual preschool, whose emotional relational development reflects, I don't know, the self-centeredness that oftentimes accompanies little children. So that we may no longer be tossed about, that we would no longer be tossed about by the waves and winds of doctrine, cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So that we, as the church and the body of Christ, would not be tossed about by Christianized secularism, by American individualism and materialism, that we would have changed, that we collectively would attain the fullness of the stature of Christ. Christian, imagine this. You are on a ship that is adrift at sea. What do you do? You're on a ship that is adrift at sea in the middle of the storm. It's getting tossed about by the waves. What do you do? It's really obvious what you do. You make sure that someone is holding onto the tiller, and you get the other people to make sure that the, the sails are trimmed, that the sheets have been tightened, and you engage the oars. And you engage in the oars, and you do everything in your might to keep that ship afloat. And you do so because it is your best chance of survival. If that ship is going to be sunk in a storm, what hope do you have as an individual isolated person who has jumped ship and is floating out in the water? What hope do you have? I mean, the the basic rule of survival in the water is grab something that floats, right? I mean, just something. I mean, even if it's a giant piece of styrofoam, like grab grab onto something that floats and clings to it. And so what we do is that we, we, we cling to this because it's your best chance of survival. But the other reason why you do it is because you actually care about your shipmates. You actually care about them. That, that we are brothers and sisters. We are the brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. So many biblical images that were stones that Christ is being built, building together into a living temple. Here in this passage, why do you not abandon ship? Because they are your body. That's your body. And you don't abandon ship. It's because you love your shipmates and you care about your body. And the body of Christ is something that Jesus himself loves. He loves the church. He loves the bride of Christ. And if Jesus gave himself for the body of Christ, because he loves the body, how could we not also? If he loves the church... So will I. Is the church in America adrift today? Absolutely. Does anybody say that it's not? Of course not. Of course the church is adrift today. Of course it's adrift when there have been decades of Christians whose goal in their Christian life has not been derived but from the word of God, but has been derived by the secular culture that has said, live for yourself, live your faith for yourself, You can do this by yourself, 
and your goal is all for yourself. Of course the church has been adrift when there have been decades of Christians who have lived the American version of Christianity. Of course the church is adrift when there have been decades of Christians whose strategy has been to jump ship instead of pulling on the oars so that the ship isn't tossed to and fro by waves and winds by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see Paul's urging in this passage, he's saying, brothers and sisters, we have to unite together. Because strength comes in unity. We have to unite together so that we are not children adrift at sea. Strength comes in unity, not in isolation. Fourth extraction that needs to occur is this. Is that Christian maturity is interdependence, not independence. It is interdependence, not independence. For some reason, we have adopted this crazy idea that I'm going to get to the point in my Christian life where I'm not going to need other Christians. I'm not, needing, I'm not going to need to depend on other Christians. Um, that I'm, I'm going to be able to do it on my own. And quite frankly, for many of us, the idea of getting to the point in a Christian journey where I don't need other people, wow, the sooner the better, because people are difficult and they're a mess and people are just problems. And so we've got this distorted view that we think that Christian maturity is independence. But what this passage shows us so clearly is that throughout this passage, the application is for the body of Christ. Indeed, Paul's whole letter, the New Testament, the entire Bible, the application is for the body of Christ. But this passage does give us a picture of the individual. It comes in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has designed something for you to do. He has granted that to you if you are in Christ. And then verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is, is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the individual part? The individual part, what is Christian maturity? It is interdependence. I, I, I jammed my finger one time. I had no idea how much I needed that little joint. I, I, I stubbed my pinky toe. I had no idea how much I used that joint. And what Paul is laying out this picture is that maturity is not independence, it is interdependence. And it is interdependence where you are connected in the body of Christ, where you are working properly, where you are rightly dependent on other people and others are dependent upon you. That you are an equipped joint that makes the body grow in love. That the body is stronger because of it. And that the body builds itself up in love. It is this task that we have recommitted ourselves to, this task of making disciple-makers, because it comes through unity. It comes through the interdependence of the body, and it comes, individual discipleship comes through the overall health of the body itself growing and strengthening. And God calls for us as a picture of Christian maturity to be interdependent. Let me ask you, is that disappointing? Is that disappointing to you? It's only disappointing if you have sold yourself out to Christianized American secularism. 
That's the only ones that that is disappointing for. Because God has given us this glorious picture, this picture of what he is doing to redeem a people for himself, to to restore indeed all of creation. He has given us a goal to to live for God in all that we do to make the, the gospel known, this profound truth that God pursues after his enemies and he rescues them and draws them to himself. God has given us something that is worth living and dying for. Your life, Paul Tripp writes, is much bigger than a good job. It's much bigger than an understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness. He wants you to be a part of it in the body of Christ. As a church, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. His body because Jesus loves his body. And we are eager to see the body of Christ built up, to see it grow, to see it strengthened, to see it united, to see it mature. We are eager to see the body of Christ built up here in Southern Maryland, across our nation, and across our world. And so, again, Scripture calls us to join together. So that each joint would be equipped in working properly as we join together in the work of making Christ known and making disciples to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you and we thank you for your goodness and grace. And we thank you that your goal for us is so much bigger than our individual lives. And Lord, we ask that you would use us to build the body and in so doing that we would grow deeply and intimately in relationship with you and that through us, others would too know the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. In your son's name we pray, amen. Please stand as we worship. Look around and recognize the body of Christ. Worship with one another. Come set your rule and